0: Right, so on to today's event. Um, today we're gonna to be asking a question, how are other power planners feeling about the state of the advice nation in the UK these days? Uh, and we're joined by three great guests that can talk us through this. So you may know him from TV's Pointless, um, but we're very pleased to have joined us today, Steve Nelson. Steve, could you introduce yourself, please? Uh,
1: I think you've done that already, Richard. Um, but yeah, I'm Steve Nelson. Uh, from the Lancat, which is a, a stupid name, really, uh, but we're stuck with it. I mean, Steve's a perfectly normal name, but the Lancat is a is a silly name, but we're here. Um, yeah, I'm Insight Director at the Lancat, uh, responsible for the research projects, initiative reports, all that kind of stuff. Um, and the biggest thing we do by some considerable distance each year is what used to be called State of the Advisor Nation, which is now called State of the Advice Nation. And I'll be telling you why in the next hour or so.
0: Brilliant, thanks Steve. Good to have you along again. Um, Jackie, over to you.
2: Hi, uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, Jackie. Um, I am here to give the in house power planner point of view. So, I am an in house power planner at Evelyn Partners. Um, we're a national company, so I'm one of about 150 power planners, I think, across across the UK. So, there's quite a few of us. i uh, been here for almost seven years now, but have been in the industry itself for about 22 years, some disgusting number like that, and I know I don't look old enough. Thank you. Um, so yeah, holistic advice, high net worth clients, we do a bit of everything. Um, for me, I really enjoy kind of the estate planning side of things, tax trusts, that kind of, that that geeky stuff, that's kind of what, what gets my power planning juices going, really. So yeah, I'm looking forward to um, seeing what's, what's come out of the survey.
0: Thank you, Jackie. Good to have you here. And now, on to our final guest, someone who has, actually has real books behind him. It's not just one of those fake backgrounds. Um, Alan, please introduce yourself. Uh, well, these are my
3: rental books from COVID days. I just never sent them back, you know, when everyone was renting books to make themselves look clever. Um, hello, everyone. Yeah, my name's Alan Gow. I'm a power planner at Arkhamel Power Planning. Uh, I haven't been on pointless. I was on a crime watch reconstruction in the mid nineties. I don't know if that qualifies me for for anything. I wasn't the guilty party. I'm very much in the background. Um, we're an outsourced firm. There's only four of us, soon to be five, hopefully. And um, we are pure power planning. We don't do um, administration. We don't do processing new business. We help people put the right plans in place. Do all the bits and bobs that go along with that, all the research analysis and the reporting side. And uh, and that's us. Been doing it for, well, I've been a power planner for 18 years and I've been for 13.
0: Wow, lucky
2: for some. And I know I don't look
0: it either. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's great to have you join us. Um, thank you also. Steve has very kindly put some slides together which have pulled out some of the headlines uh, in a power planning uh, perspective from the state of the advisor nation. So I'm gonna bring these up on screen now. Um and a copy of these is going to be available after we finished if you want to go through them in more detail. So Steve, let's start off by you telling us what is um this Sotan thing. It sounds like a rap song, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, well yeah there, there's no uh there's no rap experts at Lanka HQ. Um, unless they're keeping it under wraps, like who knows <laughs> uh, so sotan right sotan let's let's just use sotan as a shorthand, right um it was born six years ago uh from a feeling of dissatisfaction, I guess uh, that we had in house about the some of the research that we saw out there um you know perfectly well done and well executed, I'm sure. But a lot of it we felt was too simplistic, too reductive, too tied to providers um too tied to to issues like d f m provider predicts that d f m usage will increase like well, no wonder uh banana salesman isn't gonna commission research for apples, right um we also, through the loads and loads of discussions and work that we did with the advice profession of all of all shapes and sizes, felt like some of the conclusions. Uh, that we saw in the field were too simplistic. We held this kind of native belief that all advice firms were different in their own way, whether that's uh, ethos, beliefs, investment proposition, technology construction, platform adoption, all all the various levers that you can pull within an advice firm to create the signature or define who you are. Each firm is different in our view, but we kept seeing these statements in the market, like advisors want this, advisors want that. So we wanted to do something different. Stately Advisor Nation was born. Um, it's not just about, it's not a study just about what you do and what you pick and what defines you. It's as much about how you feel about the sector, about the profession, about wider society, uh, about the wider financial services sector. We want to understand how you think and how you feel and what's important to you because a lot of the work that we do um, is the Lancet, is like position ourselves in between all the main actors in financial services and by actors I mean the regulator, providers, manufacturers, asset managers and the advice profession and try and help them all work a little bit better together. Um, What we've not done a good job of historically is catering for different role types within the sector. Um, We've always made a big noise about you know if you work in Admin, compliance, investment, construction, power planning. We want your views. We want you to be part of the Lancat panel. And that was a genuinely held belief, right? But we've done a bad job of actually executing that in our work. I think this year's different where we tore Sotan apart and then built it back up again using role-specific groups through the survey. So if you are a business owner, you got a certain set of questions, you're an advisor or a planner, you got a certain set of questions. If you're a power planner, you got your own section as well. And then there was like a universal section of questions that everybody got, so we can start to look at interesting things across, across roles. It's free from provider influence, no one buys a a, a question, no one buys a section, no one sponsors the paper, it's entirely our work uh, in partnership with the advice profession. So we've got people who've helped us. I think Richard, uh, on this very call, a very host has been, you know, he, if, if we had a Hall of Fame next door with pictures on the wall, Richard's helped us out so much in the past that, that he'd have his, his mug shot on it. Uh, we couldn't do it without the advice profession. So that's what's different about this year. Uh, so it's a subtle rebrand from Stately Advisor Nation to Stately Advice Nation to recognise that it's uh, capturing voices from it everyone in the advice profession and it's a very lazy boy rebrand so it's allowed us to keep the same acronym sultan which is uh the kind of marketing tips we dish out to our clients
0: brilliant thanks steve um i've, I've been on the lancop panel for quite a few years and and do get involved whenever i can and find it really really useful actually really beneficial and it was so good this year to see you actually do a, a dedicated route for power planners because i might have mentioned that to you once or twice in the past that would be good to see so that was excellent but um what do you think people get from taking part in this research?
1: Well, this is a really good question, Richard, and it's, it's something I want to keep discussing with, with all participants uh, through our work as, as the year progresses. But what we tried to do at the outset of the, the Lancat panel, and I think we're going back six or seven years now, potentially even longer before SOTAN was born, is we tried to disrupt the traditional model of people take part, so this is research in general right take part in a bit of research it's then abstracted away somewhere in a machine in the background and then the next time you see yourself or see your views represented is in a paper or in the press like two months down the line and i'm not just talking about financial services right this is all over the place you do you do research it gets you know, anonymized and sent to this amorphous blob or machine in the background and then if you're really lucky once in a blue moon you win an ipad or an amazon voucher or something like that we tried to smash that model and to this day we still say that if you take part you get all the results back so there's not this kind of secret relationship with the client that goes on where they get something different it's your data right it's your views it's your data and that's so important to us so if you take part, it's all anonymized, it all complies with market research society guidelines, right? And all the all the serious stuff around, around data. But you will then be able to see complete peer review. So if you're, we launched a study today on guaranteed income, for example. If you read my email and go, God, that subject interests me. I'd quite like to see how I compare to my peers. Then you're going to get that debrief in a month's time. We also, to try and disturb the traditional prize draw element, we do a charity donation. So two participants each month win a two hundred and fifty quid donation to either a cause, one of the big big causes like Samaritans or Macmillan or whatever, or a local cause. It doesn't have even have to be a charity. We've had people give money to a youth group to fix a roof, for example. And it's like the best part of the job to hear these stories and and hear what what means means things to people. So that's the the main thing that that people get back in return.
0: Yeah, I must. I, I find the um... The the kind of whole picture of the research projects I've been involved in, and quite a few of those, is really useful. But it'd be good to know in in the chat if anyone's taken part in either Lancout or similar research, what made you do it? And if you haven't taken part in any of these kind of things, um, what would you make tech, what would make you take part? That would be really good to know. So let's have a look at some of the results then. And before I do that, I know there's a couple of people having a few connection dropouts. Everything looks okay this end. Um, so it might just be some isolated kind of internet problems. And he just said, try refreshing the browser. You know, the old turn it off and turn it on again thing, um, which should work. And make sure you're watching in Chrome um, or Arc or Edge because um, they're the best ones to watch in. So let's look at some of the results then, shall we, Steve? And let's start off by looking at the demographics of the participants. So do you want to talk us through the top half of this slide, first of all, and then we'll come into the bottom bit.
1: Yeah, so the the top half is the uh, gender split of everyone uh, in the study. So the four hundred participants, and it's fair to say that the the male female split is. Um, you have to be careful to not walk into emotive language here, right? But the split is better in inverted commas than it has been in previous years. And I think if if you look at uh, FCA register data from a planning and advice perspective, I think the split is something like. 85-15 or, or something like that, I think that's ballpark. Um, on the right-hand side, you see the age split uh, of the participants looking at wave six to wave five, and no surprises for seeing that that skews towards uh, the right-hand side. So uh, planners and advisors in particular tend to be uh, at a more advanced stage of their career. I'm trying very hard to neutralise my language here, Richard, but they tend to be older right, than average. Um, But if you look at wave five uh, compared to wave six, so the the most recent wave in that kind of dark, lank, green colour, there's been a little bit of a movement uh, towards the left-hand side. And I suspect you're about to ask me why that is, Richard. Mm, I am. You are. Uh, And that's because why we're here today, right? We did a, a pretty sizable campaign to try and get as many paraplanners through the door as possible. And if you see... Uh, the supporting text underneath the charts, the gender split from a para-planning perspective skews the other way, right? So we've got 55% um, female and 43% male with one individual identifying as non-binary. And certainly the age profile as well skews more towards that left-hand side. So what that's done uh, for us as a sample has not entirely equalized, but it's gone some way to equalizing the, the data somewhat compared to previous years, which is really, really interesting and I guess is reflective of our work with para planners behind the scenes, especially in the, the uh, qualitative research that we do on a regular basis.
0: It, it's good to see the impact of the of the power planning community um, having on these kind of stats and as someone that's too far on the right hand side of that age chart uh, it's great to see that um, you know power planners are are generally speaking at a younger age and the split between um, female and male is pretty consistent with a lot of the surveys that have been done by you know pfs casi ifp before that professional Parapana, you know, it's pretty much slightly in favour of, of female um, versus male. But let me come to Alan and Jackie and see what's your kind of experience about the demographics, both at large and the whole population in the, the paraplana world. Let's start with you, Jackie. Does that represent what you see?
2: Yeah, I think so. I think if you'd asked me to guess what where I thought those percentages would have come out, and maybe probably would have said slightly higher for females versus males in the power planning community. I know most places where I've worked, the power planning side of things definitely feels to be more female dominated than male dominated. But over the years, I've definitely seen that start to level out, um, and we are we are seeing more male power planners, and I think that's probably reflective of the advisor gender split, I feel, because, you know, a lot of perhaps male paraplanners uh, are more moving towards going into the advice arena, um, which I think arguably is, you know, obviously more male dominated. So I think that's kind of maybe why it skews that way slightly.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. It'd be good to see anyone in the chat kind of share their experience if it kind of replicates what they see. But Alan, does this kind of match your experience? Pretty much,
3: yeah. I mean, I think as a as a company, we're seventy five percent female, so we're like the polar opposite of the uh, of the chart on the left there. Um, similar to Jackie, though, I think if you'd said to me what, what proportion of paragliders do you think are female, I probably would have guessed about sixty percent. feels feels there or thereabouts. Um, why that is, I, I don't know. Maybe there's something in the mindset, but I think you know it's not far from fifty fifty. Um, I
1: think there's sorry
3: sorry did you, did you want to chip in with a with a thought
1: yeah i was going about wait till we finish alan sorry i thought you were Okay,
3: finished. okay um yeah i mean you know when i was not part of this industry i had this perception of financial advisors being a bit of a alpha male type role so i don't know if that's got anything to do with it in terms of the age groups um i mean i've known a couple of power planners have retired over the course of the last year um, it's nice to see an increase at the lower end. I mean, I, I guess that's you know the younger end. Does that mean there's more people joining, becoming power planners, Um, because we really need that?
0: Totally.
3: I really do. liked
2: that comment that you just highlighted there yeah, it's magic. as well. That one that just came up.
0: Yeah, Matthew's getting a lot of emoji likes on that one. Um, Steve, were you, were you going to add something to what Alan was saying?
1: I, I was The only thing I was going to add a, a little bit of colour to the the sampling is that I, I guess what I should have said at the start as well is we over-index in independent firms, um, small to medium-sized independent firms, considering the Lancat audience, people who come to us for product services, white papers and whatever. And there's a huge amount of crossover in audience from the likes of uh, Paraplanners Assembly today, and, and the mindset of people who participate in networking and conferencing and, and and all that kind of thing, it does do slightly different things to sampling and skews it ever so slightly away from the stereotypical norms in some of the larger firms who are maybe a little bit more behind the scenes than than uh, than others.
0: Yeah, there's some interesting comments in the in the chat because. Well, follow-up question was going to be, why do you think uh, you know, power planning in particular uh, is kind of structured from a demographic point of view this way? And That, that question has been asked quite a bit, and often the answers are quite um, sexist, um, being straight to the point. Um, and I think a lot of people always saw paraplanning as being just a stepping stone to being an advisor, um, and it's still, I think the best thing you can do if you want to be an advisor, because it teaches you so much about what's going on. It gives you a lot of uh, core skills. Um, but certainly in the last five, 10 years, power planning has become a, a really good career in its own right. Um, so you can be a you know a career long term paraplanner. You don't just have to be a trainee advisor, um, which is what a lot of paraplanners were called in the past. Um, but I'm going to put you on the spot now. So, Jackie, why why do you think that um, there's a much um higher representation for females in the planning community than advisors?
2: I do genuinely think that it is, um, that we are perhaps, we can see the more scope in the power planning role than perhaps um, a lot of men that come into the industry can perhaps think, can see themselves. I do think that a lot of males that come into the financial services industry, I think that, you know, I don't you know, I hate being gender specific on these things, but uh, most of them are absolutely looking to be financial advisors. And I think a very good way into that role is to go from power planning into advising, especially if you're new to the industry. I think this is, you know, power planning is a really, really good way to learn, you know, learn, learn the tricks of the trade and learn the products. And yeah, as Andy has just said, different skill sets. I think it's the age of old almost car salesman kind of thing that I think men are maybe just more confident in that kind of sales arena than perhaps women have been historically I know that's very much the case for me personally Um, I don't see myself as a confident salesperson which is a reason why perhaps advising is not something that I would want to do Also, you know, coupled with the fact that I love being a paraplanner and I find my job very interesting and I feel challenged every day. And I believe that that could continue, you know, throughout my career. Um, That's my view (laughs) of, you know, where it goes. But it's very hard to put those views across without it perhaps sounding sexist. But I think it's hard to step away from history and the historic fact that the advisor world is very male dominated.
0: Yeah, I agree. So, Alan, as a male, um, so what, what's your thoughts on this?
3: I don't think I've got a great deal to add to that, really, except to say that if 73% of uh, advisors are men, then maybe um, power planners, male power planners are moving into the advice role quicker, than being more women behind. I have no idea how that works. But I would say, you know, amongst our client bank, we've definitely got more than 20% of our clients of email. Um, so why it's like this, I don't really know. Is it changing? Yeah, I think it is quite a lot.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really good point about um, matching the population as a whole, because if you look at you know, financial services, still the, the most prominent talking heads and people that get quoted all the time are men. You know, they tend to be older men, you know, in a grey suit, grey hair, kind of, that, that's just kind of the stereotypical view of it. Uh, there are some exceptions, of course. Um, but I think when you think that, uh, you know, the population in general is slightly skewed, you know, towards female, um, mainly because females tend to live a bit longer uh, than men. Um, and yet the people that are there to coach and advise and plan, you know, their their lifestyles and, and their finances are most likely to be a man. Uh, are they gonna get them or are they not gonna get them? Um, as Andy says, kind of male, pale and stale. Um, it's an interesting one but it's good to see power planning still kind of pushing the vanguards there of uh of actually um getting a fairer representation i think uh, across the board um and it's interesting about the um the age split as well because there's there's this perpetual question about where's where's the new blood coming from you know where's the future going to come from because the days of people going to work from school at a life insurance company learning about stuff getting there you know level four then going off into the world of um independent financial advice, uh, mainly as a power planner, maybe an administrator, sometimes an advisor, those days have got, but it's good to see that there's still a, you know, good proportion of younger people um, that certainly represented power planning, so interesting, but good to see how that changes over the years, Um, and as I get further and further towards the right hand side, then I won't be worrying about it too much longer, but uh, there we go, so let's talk about where people are working then, so talk us through this one, Steve.
1: Yeah, so this was a question asked of of everyone. Uh, we're interested. Uh yeah, are you are you working um fully or mostly in the office 50-50 or fully or mostly remote? Um it like really interesting split there. There's still, you know, close to one in two people saying fully or mostly in the office, despite uh, you know, everything, you know, don't need me to lecture you on the new world post-COVID and all that kind of stuff. Um, only 16% seeing 50-50 and 37% seeing fully or mostly remote. What starts to become really instructive is when you, you uh, split by firm size. Uh, so we've taken three, the rules are uh, round numbers here, right? But sub 50 million assets under influence, we see a huge propensity to be uh, either mostly or fully remote. So just over four in 10 and a lot of these individuals, that was the case before. Uh, before COVID, you know, the, the again, got you know, gender specific language, right? But the old adage of Fred in the shed um, or working out, Billy back bedroom, we call it as well, uh, up in Scotland sometimes. Um, that still holds true, but the pattern definitely changes as you go uh, up the firm size, looking at 500 million and above. So the very, very, very biggest firms, huge propensity of 50 uh, 50. So just over 40% saying it's partly in the office uh, and partly at home, kind of reflective of our experience as an organisation as well. I mean, we're, the Lancats split almost exactly 50-50 between uh, Scottish people who mainly work here uh, and next door and those who uh, work in strange places called England and Wales um, and in various parts of the, of the country. So, yeah, really, really interesting when you start to look at the data from different perspectives.
0: Yeah, we've we've had our poll running and um looking at the results now, we've got bang on 50% work remote most of the time. Um, and then it's just over 25% are fully or mostly in the office, and just under 25% are working in kind of 50-50 or hybrid roles. So um we've got no way of telling whether people are working in big or small companies in the results there. But we do with our guests. So Jackie, you work for a big firm, don't you? So what's how it work there? What, what's the score there?
2: So, quite simply, contract changes. So I think that's probably where you may have seen that with the bigger firms, is that they're always going to go down the official route and get things written in writing so um as we started to come out of the the back end of covid and everybody mainly working from home um, they made a decision to start categorizing workers so you have we have either fully remote um so classes home-based workers and then you have kind of like hybrid versions that kind of step up from that depending on your role and those different um those different categories Uh, dictate the number of days that you are expected to be in the office so i fall into um what they call um a partly remote partial remote worker so my contract stipulates minimum of one day a week in the office um and the rest can be home-based but of course it is flex the other way um so i actually quite like the office i so i actually personally tend to split my days fifty fifty, 50 and we also have a very large central based para planning team as well which obviously you know i i work just in our bournemouth office just with our bournemouth advisors but we also have a very large central team which obviously work for advisors all across the country so they are all pretty much you know 100 percent home home workers but yeah these things get put in writing i you know i only know where i am with the bigger firms but maybe i imagine with the smaller firms they're perhaps a little bit more flexible haven't Perhaps put stringent rules in place as such.
0: Yeah, and that's a good point. I'm just going to pop a comment up on the screen that Nathan's put in the chat room. Um, I think the remote and office split differs massively for outsourced versus employed power planners, um, although you can get employed outsourced power planners as well just to produce <laughs> things. Um, but, um, yeah, I think that that's a fair point, although the outsourced world, although there's no accurate data on it, although, Steve, I might ask you in a second if you've got any of that, but um, it, it's kind of a, around about 10, maybe 15 percent of the population roughly is about outsourced. I'm not sure how much of a difference that makes. But, Alice, we've had a chat before we, about office or home or those kind of things. So you are an outsourced power planner. You're an outsourced power planning business. What's the score with you in this kind of remote or office based stuff? Well, we we started off office
3: based and we we've ditched it. So the problem with having everybody based in the office is that the pool of power planners that we could recruit from was pretty tiny, and we have a very big financial services firm based in Reading who had most of the power planners, and it was a real struggle. Um, it didn't really work for us, and now we're able to work with people who are the right fit for our business and our clients wherever they happen to be. So for us, working remotely uh, has, has been a, a fantastic. Um, success, but um, I think you know, as such a small firm, it, it, it works pretty well. Uh, looking at the results here, I mean, this this uh, bar chart on the right, it, it looks like the the smaller firms are perhaps a bit more prescriptive. We've got we've got the thirty percent and seventeen percent at each end of the spectrum. It's like the the middle bit where you've got the flexibility is a bit smaller than it is for the, for the bigger firms. And I think that's probably driven by the needs of the businesses. So if you're a power planner that's also expected to open a post and scan things onto the system and that kind of thing, they're going to need you to go in. You don't have the scope to work at home some days. You've got to be and you've got to be doing that. You've got to be doing the forms. Um, it requires you to have a physical presence in the office. Whereas the bigger companies maybe have a bit more flexibility over who does what because they've got more staff. Uh, they've probably got specialist admin staff doing some of those tasks so they can say to you yeah it's okay if you want to work from home some days
2: yeah i completely agree and also i think another thing that perhaps falls in the background here maybe for the larger firm something that's definitely come off the back of covid is you know if you start to give people more of that flexibility and allow them to be fully home-based you can start to you can start to get rid of these really expensive canary wharf buildings and you know it moves move somewhere smaller and somewhere cheaper so i think I think in the background that may have something to do with it as well
0: yeah i think quite a few providers that i know have gone from these big flagship offices to having smaller hub based offices um yeah. you know hot desk and that kind of thing And certainly here in, in our business we fall very much in the stereotypical outsource power planner smaller business we've been remote for 20 years um uh, we do have an office, but that office can be anywhere. It's just moved from one part of the country to another. So it doesn't matter where it is. Um, you know, we can work from anywhere. Um, Interestingly as well, we're currently recruiting um, for a new paraplanner. Um, and the most common answer we've had to the question of why are you looking to leave has included some version of they want me to work full time in the office now and I don't want to do that, um, which has been really interesting. I'm not sure if anybody else maybe want to pop in the chat as kind of had uh, a working style imposed on them that maybe doesn't fit them and i i struggle to understand that one because you're just going from where you live to where you work to use the same internet to do the same job but you're spending x amount of time commuting either way so what's the point about then? but i can't I remember how we did it before
2: or can you like pre covid how did we all do it before i know yeah, in the office up. every single day commuting just yeah, just question how I ever managed.
0: Yeah, I've never done that, so it's <laughs> gonna, I'm not going back to that one. Right, um, let's move on. Steve, this is one of my favourite questions in the whole piece of research. Here. You know, what stops you doing your job as well as you want to? So, share this one with us.
1: Yeah, so this is this is one of my favourite charts as well from the whole thing because um, so I've been doing advisor and and advice on sector research now for 20 years um which is yeah distressing in some sense but in another sense yeah it's a great job uh, and i wouldn't change it for the world but you you get into a rhythm of designing questions and getting results back that you kind of expect right and you you just develop a, a hopefully anyway if you're doing your job right you develop a way of understanding what's going on around you but occasionally something comes up that slaps you in the face I go, wow, I wish I'd looked at this from a different perspective, or I just hadn't expected that at all. And this is one of them. Um, so we've done a load of work on technology and integration and letter of authorities and inhibitors to, to jobs across various work streams. So we wanted to find out um, from power planning profession, what's the biggest inhibitor. Number one, we did expect, but we expected it to be a lot stronger. So 49% of people saying it's product provider administration, whether that's chasing up something, whether it's something not happening, whether it's doing multiple letter of authority requests, et cetera, et cetera. That's the biggest inhibitor. What we didn't expect was clarity on what I should be doing on a day-to-day basis with the advisors I'm working with to be so, so close behind, with 42% saying that that's the number one inhibitor. Uh, of their day-to-day working life which indeed is six times uh, the inhibitor of the technology we use um now maybe i've walked into this naively i don't know but i love uh getting data like this back because it starts to make you look at things from a different perspective because it's easy for us as a third party to go "Oh, technology integration something whiz bang will come along and that will save the world and fix the world and xyz and to a certain extent that's still true and in some respect or to, to some extent, but to have four in 10 paraplanners saying my working life could be significantly improved if we could work better, and this is a human to human thing, right, on what we should be doing, that's fascinating and I'm desperate to hear what Jackie thinks, what Alan thinks and, and what people think on the chat, because I this is a classic case of uh, Steve finding out something new, which is great.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think the chat might have a few thoughts on this one as well. So, Jackie, let's start with you then. Are the advisors really the problem?
2: Um, I <laughs> think about what you're going to say, Jackie. So when we first spoke about this, when we were having our little test call, I think I said to you, the first thing that came into my head when you asked me this question was the advisor like literally that was my off the cuff immediate response what is your biggest inhibitor to do in your job and my answer is the advisors um and the reason that i think the problem is is that it's you know uh missing information lack of file quality um but i think the thing that i tend to find the most frustrating is that nine times out of ten If there's something that I need to know or it's not noted in the file or I can't find the answer to it, you ask the advisor and they know the answer. It's in their head. They've had that conversation because, you know, let's face it, they you know, the majority of these advisors are very good at their jobs. They are having the conversations. They are having those discussions. They are obtaining the information that we need. It's just not always coming out in that file when we pick it up and we see it and, you know, and certain things can just flip a case on its head. If some, you know, if something's missing or you don't quite know exactly, you can't quite paint a picture of that file or that client or exactly what we're trying to achieve for them. And then you have you could have an idea and then you could have a conversation with the advisor and go, look, you know, this is what I'm thinking, but I'm not too sure about this, that and the other. And they can give you an answer that can literally just throw three days of work in the bin because they've then told you something that's actually quite catastrophic to what you were considering doing with this piece of advice. And you're just you're, you're starting again. You know, it's, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of effort. And like I say, nine times out of 10, they, they have this information. They, they've got it there. It just hasn't been relayed to you. And it uh, from a paraplanner perspective, that can be incredibly frustrating.
0: Yeah, uh, I agree. Uh, So Alan, you and I work in a slightly different way to Jackie, because we're both outsourced power planners. Um, So we work with a number of different advisors and firms, and we don't have that kind of direct kind of one-to-one relationship. Um, And we don't know anything about the clients, obviously. We don't know the clients. We should know a lot about them, but we don't know the clients. So how do you find this? It
3: is difficult. It's really difficult. I mean, I used to sit when I was an employed in-house power panel, I would sit at a desk facing the advisor and if I needed to know something, I could just say, "Oi, what's happening about this? And it's so much harder remotely. And, and adding in working on an outsource basis as well, it, it's almost a perfect storm. So advisors will generally come to us with an idea of what they want to do, what advice they want to give. And typically, either it doesn't make sense because there's something we don't know or it doesn't make sense because something's wrong. And trying to find the missing piece of information and having to park that case until you get it, it's, it, it's, a, it's a real problem, it's a, it's a big inhibitor to just getting, getting on the work, getting case done. Um, and I think if you ask most paratons what their favorite tool is, most of them will say something like Excel or FE Analytics but for me, it's the crystal ball. It's it's this ability to kind of second guess what an advisor is thinking or what they haven't considered and to factor that into how you're working. It's kind of a must have in
2: this game. Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm forever trying to work on my telepathy skills.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's, um, I mean, they're, they're not trying to make our lives harder. That, that's the bottom line here. So it's not that they're going out of their way to make us parapoders a bit unhappy, but and I'm going to sound like a stereotypical paraphernalist. It's about good systems and processes and following them. Um, you know, there's certain bits of information that we need to do our jobs properly to get a great outcome for the client. We're working as a team with the advisor to deliver that. So let's, let's get away these barriers. You know, if it means you've just got to spend an extra five minutes just relaying some information in whatever form works the most efficiently, you know, then, then do it. Um, and Christina's put a good comment in the chat. So it's amazing how good I am at lateral thinking now. I'm outsourced. Yeah, that that's one of the big skills. Um, you know, problem solving, lateral thinking, filling in the gaps, uh, as someone else might call it. Um, that's a really important skill of a power planner. Um, but um, Rory Percival, some of you might remember, who's uh, gone off to do much more interesting things now, used to say that his key thing was, you know, flowery language. We want to hear the words the clients use about their objectives, so we can relate it to suitability. Love it when we get that kind of stuff, um, and that that's the most important thing. and um, again, I'm going to speak on, on my role as an outsource power planner. I've worked with some advisors for over 20 years. Um, so you just kind of get to know them. And that, that's a benefit about working in one firm and maybe working with a, a number of advisors for a period of time. I just know what they mean. And I've worked on these clients' cases for 20 years. So you just kind of build up that knowledge. But when I start working with a new advisor um, and they're not quite so good at transferring that data, it's just like, oh, you know, help <laughs> you bang your head against a brick wall. Um, have Jackie or Alan have you come up with any solutions that might work
2: um, well we actively mold our advisors here so I'd say similar to kind of what you're saying you know you've had that advisor that you work with for 20 years um, we kind of don't take any of this rubbish here in the Bournemouth office to be honest um, if you you, you know we we communicate we have a very good communis- communication system with our advisors you know and quite frankly we've spent years molding them we spent years and years training them on how we want them to do relay their job to us um so you know um we we do still get issues but for the most part you know they're pretty well trained um and I think you know I think communication is is absolutely key on this um you know I don't if I have to push back and if there's things that I'm missing I don't I try not to be the kind of like finger pointer. This is your fault kind of thing. You know, I think it's a communication process and um, we're all going to learn along the way. Um, and for me, that that's important. But also you retain that respect as well between the power planners and the advisors because you just don't want anybody to see that as a barrier. So I think, yeah, you work like, like Pippa's just said, you work collaborative, co- collaboratively Um each of us know what the other one requires from them. And we we mold and change as, as we as we can.
0: Yeah, I, I really endorse all those comments there. Um, I I think that we did a survey of our advisor clients a couple of years ago, and the biggest benefit of sort of working with us was that challenge, that second opinion, that sense check. Um, so they rely on us um, to, to a lot of uh, uh, to a great extent to actually do that kind of role for them. So it is all about collaboration. Um I like that word, one of my favourite words there. So. But the, the biggest kind of inhibitor here, Steve, isn't it, is is product provider and administration. So you kind of got some some answers from people here about what could providers do um to help. And a big shout out to all of our supporters who are providers as well, by the way. Thanks very much. Steve.
1: Obviously the best um the best providers. Uh I shouldn't have said that. Um yeah, and one thing i am going to add, I, I took a note when when you guys were chatting, the, the discussion's fascinating. Um, by the way, and loads of comments, but I've taken a note here to say, let's look and see if those data cuts on the previous slide look differently in the remote versus office environment, just to see if working in the office can can level out some of that dissatisfaction person to person. But yeah, we asked a, a, an open question, how can providers help uh, your day-to-day life? So this was an absolutely open uh, question, and we did loads of analysis in the background, grouping the grouping the the responses into themes. Um, Four distinct themes came through strongly and both one and two are related and both three and four are related. Uh, One and two is all about delivering information in a more efficient manner. So by God, just do what we ask. If we come at you asking for a pro forma of information, please return it and please return it on time. Taking that one step further into theme number two is give it give it to me in one source of truth, one source of information. And that talks to all the work streams we've done in the last few years on letter of authority in particular uh, and some of the huge issues that, that advice firms have across the country. Themes three and four are, are a little bit um, more, I don't know if nuanced is the right word or a bit more emotive. Emotive is probably the, the better word where going into uh, this wave of the study we were informed by the many many discussions we've had behind the scenes with power planners and that sense of and i've yet to find the right way of articulating this but the the sense that they are not as well regarded uh as advisors um within the sector as a whole and that's come through uh in the in the responses so number three you know treat me with equal respect to advisors so don't just you know, blacklist me if I phone up, I am acting on behalf of a client and, and an advice firm, have a, a dedicated channel or a dedicated feed or a way of communicating with us uh, as a role. Um, and number four, I, we sometimes hear of a complete lack of understanding of the different business models that the in-source versus outsource model even exists and what it entails and what the nuances are. Um, so. Again, the, these are relatively simple things, right? In the grand scheme of things, we're not looking for hex boson here, right? It's stuff that could and should be addressed. Uh, but yeah, lots of emotive stuff coming through uh in the study.
0: Yeah, and you you should try being an outsourced power planner trying to speak to a provider. It's like uh, it's a whole new wall of pain, yeah. that one. Um uh, people can read kind of some of the more anecdotal comments when they look at the slide deck but um, this does lead us nicely on to the next slide which is about um, what people think of the power planning role in what regard is the role held and there's two really um, interesting stats that came out um, for me on this one so we just said that providers had the biggest slice of the, the inhibitor score on the last one but on this one power planners thought they understood us really well more than anybody else um, and the other surprise for me on this one was um, who has an extremely poor regard for power planners, and the highest score was the regulator. I was quite surprised by that one. So what did you find of this one, Steve?
1: Yeah, so I I view, um, yeah, equal surprise to you, Rich, that the platform and product providers was coming through so strongly. um, And that probably has a lot to do with interpersonal stuff as opposed to processes. So while it can still be an inhibitor, Um, I suspect, and I could be wrong with this because we didn't ask explicitly, but I suspect this is all to do with established interpersonal relations from provider to provider, and you become used to the people that you deal with. And again, that's a human-to-human connection. Uh, The clusters two and three are virtually identical. If you look at it on a net positive basis, and there's probably a a little bit of statistical significance, Uh, I don't want to go down the weeds with statistical language here right but it's virtually uh, identical based on the sample size but yeah regulator that's that's a pretty bleak stat that um almost one and one and two saying it's uh they believe the regulator holds them in a poor regard and i think that's probably got a lot to do with them simply not using power planning in their language the, in most regulation I see and I'm allergic to uh, any form of abstract legal language, that's probably because I've gone through a divorce uh, in my life. So I, I, you know, I shake when I start to see that kind of abstract language. Um, but yes, yeah, probably because it's it's not acknowledged. I think we're seeing comments coming through, coming through already. Again, that's a human reaction though, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Um, Jackie, what, what's your views on this one, the results of this one?
2: think it's funny isn't it because i think when we spoke about it before i kind of had a completely opposite view to that but actually i think my opposite view was um maybe from a perspective of what the regulators should be acknowledging about us i feel like the regulators should love para planners and they should absolutely be singing on the same hymn sheet as us because at the end of the day guys we're the ones trying to uphold your rules we're the ones trying to stick to these regulations we're the ones trying to keep these advisors in line doing things the way that you would like things to be done so i actually think it should be the exact opposite that they should absolutely be aware of our existence and be promoting our existence and it's just understanding how much we can help them get these messages across and get things being done correctly so I think it was quite funny when I first looked at the stats I was almost surprised but then actually I thought oh god no this is because they don't hear us they need to sit in a room with us and understand how valuable we are to helping them deliver this and deliver things correctly
0: yeah let's get Jackie down to Canary Wharf now shall we (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> sort that out um alan any different thoughts or other thoughts on this one
3: Not, not really not a great deal i mean my first thought when i saw the results of the survey was this is by omission they're not talking to us they're not talking about us so we're just not being acknowledged it's what steve said uh but they should be and really i can't add anything to what jackie just said it's absolutely spot on
0: yeah, it's it's an interesting one. I think that there are one or two people in the regulator. Well, not so many anymore, but particularly when Rory Percival was there that really got power planning and power planners and went out of his way to to engage with the community and listen to the community. Um, I think that's that that's a bit lacking now. Um, certainly from my experience uh, on that one. So let's um let's talk about what keeps us awake at night, shall we, Steve? Now this question was really aimed at business owners, um, which some of us on this session are, you know, we're power and business owners, but some of us work for businesses. So um, while you talk us through the results on this one, it'd be good to know in the chat room, um, what keeps people awake at night in terms of their work? Um, If you can share that in the chat, but Steve, do you want to talk us through this one?
1: Yeah, I I think... uh, uh... First thing to say is there's a there's a wide range of responses, so what we're illustrating there is the most predominant reason that was mentioned by uh, business owners and directors. Um, the 31% saying compliance and regulation is reflective of uh, some of the more open, verbatim-led questions that we have uh, hosted in Stately Advice Nation over the years. Um, lots of business owners feeling that they are overly regulated, that the eye of Sauron should be facing uh, or pointing elsewhere. Uh, the vast majority of advice firms of all shapes and sizes do amazing work and great work to a high standard. But in terms of the sheer depth of stuff uh, that's gone on, so not only consumer duty, right? Consumer duty is the, the the thing of the day right now, but, you know, in my, I'm just thinking back in my time at the Lancat, which is coming up for 11 years now, we've dealt with ps 13 one, so unbundling of charges, uh, Mifid two, pensions freedom, the whole raft of uh, uh, sustainable investment and ESG changes and now consumer duty. So there's just been perpetually something um, on the regulator's agenda that's driven fundamental changes to the way that we have to operate. So it's no surprise to me Uh, To see that that's a predominant segment, but then that there's a long tail of uh, other stuff that as someone who helps run a small business, uh, I recognize lots (laughs) of those as well, frankly, uh, because they're things that that keep me uh, awake at night. uh, Other than the monsters, Rich.
0: Yes, well, we said we weren't going to talk about those, but... um... You've let them out now, so Alan, you're you're a business owner, small business owner. I'm really hoping you're not in the seven percent that your staff keep you awake at night. But um, are there <laughs> a, what's the main reasons that apply to you? Fortunately, I'm not. No, Um I have. Well, there's, there's three main things I think. One is
3: that there's something about waking up in the morning at three o'clock because um, you need a week, that makes your brain go, oh, hang on a second, because you're away from your desk, you're away from the screen, and and it, I just have these moments to clarity i guess at that sort of time of the night on, on things that i can't get my head around when i'm in front of my uh, computer um and suddenly a, a solution to a case will pop into your head and think, that's it so um i used to be quite good at writing legibly in the dark because i had to get it out of my head before go, go back to sleep uh now i just leave my phone on but muted i'll just pop, pop myself and note, and be picking up in the morning um the second one is the to-do list which i think you know to dos and, and workload probably applies for, for many of us. Um, but the one that's most interesting to me at the moment is I've had a few conversations with people recently about AI. And in particular, now I'm finding I'm having these thoughts in these kind of moments where I've got a bit of headspace to think about what we can actually do with this. And that started off for me as playing about with Chat GPT and going, mm-hmm. yeah, okay, but it's progressing. Um, And it's things like getting transcripts of um, meetings that advisors have had with their client um, and systems that will pull key information out of those meeting notes and provide us the things that sometimes we currently don't get on the case that make the world of difference.
0: Yeah, uh, we're doing a special online assembly on AI early in the summer. Um, the good, the bad, and the ugly is the working title on that at the moment. Um, so um, we'll, we'll be covering that a bit more. Um, so, Jackie, I mean, you work at a big firm. Surely you just leave at the end of the day and don't worry about anything? <laughs>
2: um, sometimes. Sometimes that that happens. Um, I tend to have um, two levels of anxiety that happen for me at work when I, I physically feel my anxiety levels increase. Um, my, my first one, I call my AQ anxiety. So this is advice quality in our team. So whenever I have to send a case to AQ for pre-sale checking, I suddenly get this anxiety about whether I can remember to do my job anymore um, and and just start to doubt every single word I've written in that report and everything I've done. And, and they'll always pick on, on something that I've not thought of. So yeah, AQ anxiety is a, is a thing that tends to keep me up at night sometimes and um, meetings booked anxiety stressing out a little bit so um, you know oh just so you know here's this file to write in the meetings in five days time my anxiety levels tend to hit the roof at that point so <laughs> they are my two general levels of yeah of, of, of stresses that um, would would stop me sleeping at night.
0: Yeah, I think we're in the 91% that reported they don't sleep well, which was a bit of a (laughs) shame, isn't it? So so last slide, Steve, is about our old friend. You've mentioned it already, uh, and that's consumer duty, isn't it? So um, we'll pop a link in the chat, actually, to an online assembly we did Uh, was it last month or it was sometime in the last few months I've lost track of everything um, on consumer duty which you can watch if you haven't seen already so um, Steve what's this one about
1: yeah so this one is about the degree to which consumer duty has impacted your firm Uh, we've got to remember that this the field work uh, was conducted at a certain moment of time arguably the perfect moment to to uh, assess this uh, in the autumn of last year so field work was conducted um, in late September right uh, up to early November, which was uh, coincidentally the broadcast date of Pointless Series 30, Episode 31. There it is. It happened at last. Um, no further questions, Your Honour. Um, so what we're seeing there is a majority uh, of firms are saying, or they self-identify, so it's not having a huge impact on their day-to-day working life. They're identifying uh, as being good firms doing good things. Where there has been an impact on firms, just to give you a little bit of color of the data behind the scenes, were four predominant uh, reasons for um, or four predominant things that have happened uh, within firms. 45% uh, of individuals say they've made tweaks to their comms, so the communications to clients, 41% to their client segmentation, 37% to their charging, so the TCO. Uh, for customers, and 33%, 1 in 3, saying uh, changes to their vulnerable customer processes.
0: Excellent. We're rapidly running out of time, so a couple of quick questions. Um, Aram's asked, how many respondents were there to the survey, Steve?
1: Uh, Over 400, and then almost bang on 400 once we cleaned uh, the data. So statistically significant based on the wider advice population within a degree of tolerance, is the official answer.
0: And Jackie, consumer with duty related, what's the biggest impact it's had on you as a kind of in-house power planner?
2: Yeah, so I think in-house power planner of a national firm that has, you know, had a lot of m as a lot of mergers and acquisitions. We've got legacy propositions lying all over the place. We've got propositions that do the same thing as another one, but they charge in different ways. Um, so for us, it's just been trying to unbundle all of that mess really. And you make sure that we've got a cohesive, charging structure across all of this legacy stuff that we've got hanging around. I feel like I get an email every week now telling me there's some kind of charging changes happening to propositions somewhere and we're we're moving clients, you know, to different charging structures. That's been the most noticeable um, you know, impact of of consumer duty for me, definitely.
0: Okay. And Alan, on behalf of all outsourced power planners, um, what's the biggest impact to, to you of Consumer Duty? Not a great deal, to be
3: honest. Um, in terms of reporting style, we were laying layering reports already. Um, you know, we made some tweaks, we made some tweaks in terms of trying to help our advisors um, be able to evidence things that they were already doing, really. They just didn't necessarily have a way of showing it. Um, so it's not had a huge impact on us in that respect. I'm interested to see when the next consumer duty de- deadline comes in for the closed book providers in July how they sort out the issues they've got with service, because I think if that was solved, that would really help us do our jobs better. I'm looking forward to that one.
0: Yeah, very good point. And Ian has popped the link to the podcast and the video uh, edition of our consumer duty special from last month. Um, And I'm sure we'll be doing some more of that uh, as time goes by. Um, Well, if you'd like to take part in Landcat research, uh, we'll pop a link in the chat room. You can join in, and Steve would be eternally grateful. Um, might even share more of his experience about being on uh, Pointless, if, if you're very lucky, so um, always good to hear. Uh, um, and don't forget to keep an eye on our website for our upcoming events. We've got quite a lot planned and is available to book already. You can keep this conversation going on The Big Tent on our website, um, which is always a good uh, good resource for interesting questions and answers. Um, some big thank yous from us. First of all to Steve, Alan and Jackie. Massive thank you from all of us for actually sharing your time, your insights uh, and experience. Much appreciated by all of us. To our good supporters out there, uh, Aegon, Barnet-Waddingham, Canaccord Genuity, MG Wealth, Parmenian, Scottish Widows and Transact. And thank you all for watching and some excellent questions and comments in the chat there. It's really sparked off there. It's been great. I'm going to have to go back and read it again after we finish now. So. Thank you very much for joining in and participating as always, and we'll see you all again very soon. Have a good afternoon and goodbye from us.